to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. It's the week of August 1st, and I'm your host, James Huang. We have our usual complete crew with us today for the first time in quite a long time, including pro mechanic of the Boulder Groupetto sitting right next to me, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. Tech editor Dave Roman, Sydney. How are you? You still in lockdown? Yes, uh, doing well. Uh, the Negroni happy hour is getting earlier. <laughs> Um, mm. but yes, I'm doing well. Thank you. Okay. It's like okay. It's eight o'clock in the morning there right now. Wait, who's yeah. that? Wait. Oh, yeah. wait. After a long hiatus, we have the hammer himself. He's back. <laughs> Cycling Tips editor in chief, Kaylee Fretz. So good to be back. It's so good to be back. Can I just express disappointment that nobody has sent me one of those like $4,000 Silka hammers yet? <laughs> What's the point of, of leaning into this, uh, this hammer branding that I've given myself? If we have, I don't we, get free hammers out of it. We have a special one being made just for you, and the face <laughs> of the hammer is actually printed in the shape of your face. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. So every time you smack something with a hammer, you'll be smashing your face against whatever object <laughs> it is you're smashing. Uh, excellent. Mm -hmm. Yes, Can't wait. indeed. Okay, speaking of 3D printing, we have a great show for you today, as always. It has been a big two weeks for 3D printing, as a matter of fact, for good reasons and some not so good ones. We have a crazy Ponzi scheme to talk about involving a shady American and three well-known Italian brands. Ibis is back in the cross-country mountain bike market with a new made-in-US race model, and Muckoff may have kicked off a new trend by ditching a bunch of water. Hmm, interesting. All right, let's get into it. Okay, we're going to start off with some 3D printing news today. Uh, Dave, have you placed your order yet for your custom 3D printed road shoes yet? I mean, what? My, my Law One's Founder Edition shoes for only US $1,900. Yeah, it's not quite $2,000. You still have $1,000 saved up for something else. Mm. Um, as, as, appealing, as appealing as they are, um, I've got enough shoes on test at the moment that I haven't yet. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I do fancy sort of a, a spider web looking shoe that, um, takes a completely different approach to, to fitting and only costs two and a half thousand Australian dollars. <laughs> All right. Mo moving away from the cost for a moment here, <laughs> what, besides the fact that these are 3d printed, what exactly makes these shoes different? Of course, aside from how they look, uh, look, uh, I haven't used them. No one here has used them. I don't think many people have used them yet because they haven't been in production. But basically, they're using uh, carbon fiber thermoplastic 3D printing uh, technology to produce custom shoes that uh, don't look anything like current shoes. Uh, it's basically a fully rigid surround um, with like a, a kind of a web look. And the idea is, is that they're... They're focusing really on the alignment and the, um, I guess, a, a rigid hold of the foot. So by the sounds of it, they're, they're letting the foot sort of move a little bit side to side and not compressing any of the the nerves that run through the foot. But at the same time, they're kind of holding the foot top to bottom, which is quite a interesting take on shoe design. And they have kind of an interesting take on how you are, how they're supposed to be getting the mold for these shoes too, right? 
Yeah, the, you basically ask Siri to, sang, uh, to scan your foot. So they've got they've basically uh, set up an adjacent company that that has a like a three D modeling scanning software that's that's app based. It's only for um, iPhone at the moment. Uh, but yeah, they they basically created a, a scanning tool that that lets you get three D scans of, I guess, any body part, and they're they're planning to license this to other sports brands. I actually just did something almost exactly like this for ski boot fitting. Mm, interesting. Fisher Fisher has an app where you just you put your foot on a piece of like white like letter paper basically. You pick a size whether it's like sort of US letter size or A4. You put your foot halfway on it. You take a photo from the right side, the top and the left side and you do that for both feet and it 3D scans your foot and pumps out measurements of your entire foot. And then in their case, tells you what your Mondo size is, your like ski boot size. Right. But it's it's a super cool tech. And like it, it shows you this 3D scan of your foot at the end. And I looked at the scan and then looked at my foot and they looked the same. <laughs> and so I think it I think it did a pretty decent job. It also popped out the correct size ski boot. I already know what size ski boot I need. I was just doing it sort of because it was interesting and it popped out the correct size ski boot it's very interesting you say that because the founder of law one was the former well he was the founder and eventually got uh, removed from the company and kind of a an unfortunate forced takeover um but he was the founder of dps skis which is kind of a, a high-end ski band which were quite oh, innovative we know what DPS many years. Skis are. Uh, yeah so <laughs> as zach um, says the yeti of skis which yes <laughs> Yeah, there's so a couple layers of jokes in there. It's it's funny <laughs> that you say that you've done something similar with the ski because I think there's a lot of uh, elements of this cycling shoe design that show ski influence, um, and it's it's quite interesting. Um, but so, then there is the price. Yes, <laughs> I mean I think that like the elephant in the room is that these shoes look absolutely awful. Yeah, they which do, is why they the why they provide design. shoe covers. Yeah, yeah, but I think the design leaves a lot to be desired. But I think it'll be really cool to see where this technology goes, like at a lower price point and kind of like just seeing what the next iteration of it is. It's the same as like the, the 3D printed saddles. Like they look kind of funky, but they're really, really, really good. And I think it'll be really cool to see what what this technology holds down the road for shoes. I, I do think that there's another option here, which is one of those um, just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should. And I think we're going to run into that. Maybe this isn't a an instance in which in, where that's true but i think we're going to run into that with 3d printing over the next half decade because all of a sudden you can make everything with 3d totally. printing and it it's not always the best application oh i think i think we've seen that in the last fortnight uh with oh don't worry we're know. gonna get to that don't <laughs> yeah worry. don't uh, you worry <laughs> <laughs> so there you go and, and i'm not saying that that's that's the case with these shoes i've never tried them i have no idea if they're any good Ditto. Like you, like you said, Zach. Like those those 3D printed saddles, like the the specialized mirror stuff. Far and away the most comfortable saddle I've ever ridden. Right, incredible, incredible tech. But I just, yeah, I mean, given given the sort of unique things that we've been making shoes for a very long time, I guess is the point. You know, we've been putting shoes on feet for a couple millennia now, and we're pretty good at it. And I'm not sure that this particular technology adds a ton to it, but who knows? I could be wrong. Ton of price tag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely adds a lot to the price tag. But all this talk of these specialized mirror saddles, I mean, you've mentioned this several times before. I think both of you have. And I'm feeling a little left out over here because I haven't tried one yet. And I'm, I'm feeling like I need Physique to make a phone call. Physique makes them too. 
Physique does make one. I have tried that one and it's quite comfortable. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm but, a big fan of that saddle, but at the same time, you 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 love it so much and then they tell you the price and you're like, would I pay for this? Right. Was it $450? 450 US. Yeah. yeah. I heard they're coming out with a metal railed version. So that'll bring the price point Which down. Which be 440 US. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I have to say, I'm, I, I need to write the review, but I have been using like the specialized power mimic saddle. The, the new one, which was kind of designed initially for women, and uh, they've they've since realized that men like it too, like the original saddle, uh, power saddle, and uh, it's it's very good. It's a good substitute. It's a low cost substitute. Speaking of three D printing things, just because you can, not necessarily because you should. Adidas also announced some new three D printed <laughs> sunglasses. Three D printed sunglasses, really. Uh, although these seem a little more like a novelty, uh, there's not a whole lot in the way of like genuine feature advantages. Kind of a big, kind of a weird look. Big price tag. Uh, I think it's uh, it's oh I can't remember what the price of it now was. It's four hundred something. Uh, too much. Roughly the same. Roughly the like same as that specialized mirror saddle. Four eighty, I think. I think it was like four eighty. It was a lot. It was for something US. Yeah. I mean, this would be cool if you could like scan your head and get custom shaped sunglasses to fit you perfectly. But if they're just like stock 3D printed sunglasses for $400, oh, it seems a bit silly. It was silly, yeah. My favorite comment for that product was, uh, oh, great, some sunglasses that can now match your Delta 7 frame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did see that. I did see that. Although, ironically, Delta 7 wasn't 3D printed. I'm pretty sure after the rash of head tube failures that I saw at, at Interbike that one year, that they probably did not continue on not too long after that. No. Their website's still um, up. Is Interesting. it? Yeah. Huh. Doesn't look like it's been updated in a long time, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, best of luck to them. Best of luck to them. Uh, in some not so good news on the 3D printing front. Uh, well, maybe anyway. Uh, if you've been following track racing at this year's Olympics, it was pretty hard to watch Australian rider Alex Porter hit the deck very hard uh, after the custom handlebar on his Argon 18 suddenly snapped as he was going through the banking but we're still digging into this a little bit. We do now have confirmation that the bar was made by Australian company Bastion. Uh, and that company is well known for their work in 3D printed titanium. But this whole situation is still a little confusing, Dave, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the photos that we've got kind of show more hollow composite looking structure, which doesn't align with uh, Bastion's normal... 3D titanium printing structure, which uses like a lattice. Um, but yeah, I mean, the company have have claimed it's theirs. They they would be using titanium in this in this instance, and I think it might just be a bit of um, poor imagery or trick photography or bad lighting, or maybe the lattice broke off into the other component we haven't seen. So I think I think we've we we kind of got led astray by by the images. But I think it's uh, unfortunately it is what what we didn't want it to be i guess i mean because so, it was a yeah. very catastrophic and very sudden failure if you watched the the replay uh on you know on twitter or on tv or whatever i mean he was just coming out of the banking and basically his the, the front of his body just you know plummeted to to the deck yeah and that was it like there seemed to be no warning or whatsoever the, the stem basically just broke in half and then the images are you know these show a very clean break you don't really see a whole lot of shards of anything uh and like you said david there doesn't really seem to be any sort of internal structure in there that that bastion would typically do in a 3d printed part a 3d printed titanium part anyway 
Um, that said, I mean, Bastion does do molded carbon fiber. Um, yeah. But it's unclear if this was a custom front end, why they would use a custom carbon fiber construction for that instead of what they're good at. I, I, I did have a quick chat with Raul Lucia about this, kind of an off-record chat, but he is involved with Bastion for their carbon fiber side of things. He helps with the the testing and the, the scanning of their carbon fiber components. Uh, he wasn't aware of them ever doing a carbon fiber um, stem. Um, he, he, he believes that those parts have always been metal. So... I kind of I kind of suspect that yeah it, it goes back to that this was a titanium component um, even though Bastion do now have carbon fiber facilities in house um, I believe that their whole approach to to the use of carbon fiber is more to keep it for like straight tubes and then use titanium for the the intricate um, complicated curvatures and stuff and that that they even take to simple things like the the curve of a, a drop handlebar for example on their new road bike they they decided to do that titanium um in titanium because they didn't believe that you can uh so consistently form the the curved drop of the handlebar with with carbon fiber they thought that there was risk involved in that so um yeah i mean we're, we're talking about a company here which which clearly seems to take their their safety and their their quality control seriously uh and unfortunately they had a, a failure on the the world's largest stage yeah and again like a very confusing failure on a part that doesn't seem like it would typically come from them in a super catastrophic fashion. And it's just very, very weird. And hopefully we will get some more information out of this sooner than later. But at this point, who knows? I mean, my, my initial thought when I saw this, like obviously other than it being terrible and that shouldn't happen was like, I wonder if something maybe got damaged in transport. Like there, how many bikes are they piling in to these boxes to get there and, and cargo containers and stuff like that could have happened, but also, I mean, regardless, like these guys on all this prototype stuff are pushing the limits of what, what these materials can do. But that was, that was my thought initially. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's interesting, like they, Bastion first started doing the, these custom stems for the team for the, for the track sprinters, you know, much higher loads, much, much more force. And, uh, those were ridden just fine. You know, they, they managed to get around the track without, without any problems. And they've, they've managed to do so for probably the last two years. So um, I think, yeah, whatever, whatever's happened here, I think we'll, we'll find out. Um, the engineers at Bastion have, have said that they'll, they'll let us in the, you know, tell us what, what happened once they know. I, I mentioned this in the regular weekly podcast where we briefly discussed this as well, but it, it, it's not making sense to me because why, you don't care about having a light handlebar yep. on a pursuit bike. You just don't, it doesn't matter. I mean, those bikes, they're not light bikes by any stretch of the imagination. So it, it just... There's so many things about this that don't add up to me. It doesn't yeah. look like the kind of part they would make. It doesn't look like the material they would use for that part, even if they did make it. And then you've got a part that looks like it was built for low weight that there's no point in like it, it being light. It almost seemed like someone like mistakenly installed a like a, a prototype or yeah, something. Yeah, that was what was running through my mind. Because that that does happen, right? Like Aaron Gwynn in the downhill world broke a, you know, very badly injured himself from a broken crank that i think was a, a prototype or or similar um yeah i mean it, it does happen at this level it, it can happen that parts get mixed up especially once they're painted um but yeah it's i don't know we'll we'll find out it's it's at the moment everything is just uh conjecture i guess but it's a very unfortunate incident yeah. all right well i guess we will find out hopefully what happened here uh, because, again, there's just an awful lot of confusion around this situation and just not a whole lot of clear-cut answers here. 
Uh, we do have another final bit of 3D printing news. What do we got, Dave? Uh, tools. Uh, Silka have gotten into uh, quote and unquote workshop tools, which uh, I guess we can cover that part of that claim, but uh, is, um, yeah, basically they're using 3D uh, printed titanium um, to produce a few things. They, they first started with a, with a computer mount that... Um, led to many memes uh and now they've got uh, a hammer a cassette tool and a chain whip um and they're roughly 150 us dollars each um which the hammer puts that roughly in line with other titanium hammers um and actually a little bit cheaper than a number of options um but yeah the cassette tool and chain whip are by far the most expensive things out there zach i'm looking at your tool tool wall right now and i don't see any titanium tools up there? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't have any titanium ones, I think. I, don't I think. mean, I guess having a titanium tool would make it really hard for, for it to stick to your, you know, magnetic bars that you have up there. Yeah, I but, mean... I mean, how can you even call yourself a real mechanic? I know. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I'm a well-known, established, global player in, <laughs> uh, in hammer expertise. And yet... I struggle to see why I would buy a $150 hammer instead of a like $7 hammer from Ace Hardware. I mean, I think for travel, you, for trying to have the lightest toolbox possible. To so that's not like have seven mechanics? Fees. That's like yeah. seven mechanics across but I think the entire too, universe? Like in, in that defense, like I've worked as a race mechanic and I've had a toolbox that was super light that I could put in a suitcase with a folding repair stand and still be under the weight limit. Because if you're a mechanic that has a, a toolbox that's light enough, you're not a neutral mechanic. Because a neutral mechanic, you need tools to basically do everything. So if you're a race mechanic working for a team or a one rider or whatever, you have, you're not bringing any more tools than what you need to work on that specific bike. So your toolbox is already really light. And to have these tools that are like, I don't know. They're so expensive and you're not saving really anything over like an Abbey, for example. Yeah. yeah. And to me, it just seems like a, we're doing this because we can, not because it's a, yeah. A need. And that's, and that's my take. So I, I did a, I did a, I visited Bastion a few months ago and did a feature with them about how 3d printing titanium works. Um, and very unfortunately that feature went up about six or seven hours before, <laughs> Oops. um, it was very, the very rider had a, yeah, before the, the incident on the track. Um, and a lot of people thought that we published that feature in response to the incident, which was just not at all true, but, um, it's almost as if we had a, it's almost as if we had like a little explosive charge in the stand. Yeah, no, I used happen. tarot cards and, and you to, you to publish it when I did. Um, but, uh, no, so my point with that is uh, speaking with James Wilcock of Bastion, he was saying that, you know, 3D printing titanium is still a very expensive uh, thing to do. You know, it's very energy intensive. Like it, it takes them almost 48 hours to do a, a print run. Um, and, you know, the pay, the powder that's used is incredibly expensive. This And there's lots of post-finishing work required. Um, and there's still manual labor involved in it. Um, and he was saying the only real reason to use it is for customization these days. Like, the, you know, if you, if, if you can do a, a part and just sort of stamp it out or machine it, and that's a more efficient way of doing it, then that's still the better way of doing that part. He's like, but, you know, for, for customizing lugs, for example, he's like, you know, then the printing comes in and that has benefit and it, you know, outweighs the, 
the literal cost. And unfortunately for these Silka tools or the, the Mensola mount, I kind of feel like it falls into the trap of it's not a customization product. It's just a because you can product. And, you know, it's like, it's cool, but there's not a lot of technical reason for these products to exist. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like they bought a 3D printer and are like, well, I guess we have to use it now. What can we make? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I've, I've, I've heard a few people sort of suggest that Silk is almost playing with their 3D printer here and figuring out exactly how far they can do it and refining their process on sort of safe parts that no one's going to get injured with or, or you know, um, no one's going to be upset if one of these parts breaks. Um, I mean, I'd be upset then, if my titanium chain whip broke. Yeah, but then they warranty it. But like, you know, you're not going to end up on on the road because it breaks. So, um, but yeah, I, that's sort of some of the rumors is that they're kind of, you know, learning how to use this tech with with bigger plans in mind. I think that makes sense. So, but yeah, unfortunately, like their, their cassette tool, um, not to rubbish on Silka here, but it's it's almost, I think it's two and a half times the price of an Abbey. It weighs the same and it's not as strong. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Thumbs down. I th- yeah, we can call things bad when they're bad. Yeah, that's yeah. bad. Yeah, <laughs> it's I cool. mean, this is the kind of thing that someone's gonna buy and put in a fancy, fancy wooden toolbox or yeah. like an Instagram mechanic. It's gonna look great on their in their Pelican case with all the perfectly cut out foam. Like it'll get so many likes on that. But for like real day to day use by a mechanic, yeah. like yeah. not not real no. world. No, I mean no. Silk is just they're just aware of this and they milk it. They milk it really well. They know what they're doing. Wait, it's that- uh. Yeah. Zach, are you suggesting that Instagram isn't totally reflective of the real world? Nonsense. No, it's very much real world. No. (laughs) Blew my mind. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, moving on from 3D printing, uh, we have recently uh, an insane, totally insane Ponzi scheme that just erupted in the United States. Uh, If you haven't read the article that Ian Trelora wrote about this uh, on SlackingTips.com, make sure you check that out. Um, but the summary essentially is, uh, outdoor capital partners is a cycling centric investment fund based here in Colorado and the securities and exchange commission, uh, it's basically the regulatory body, uh, for this sort of thing in the United States, uh, just announced that OCP's managing director, Sam Mancini was under investigation for quote, orchestrating an investment fraud scheme and fraudulently obtaining more than approximately $10 million from victims, unquote. Allegedly. Uh, allegedly, yes. Uh, according to the documentation, Mancini has led uh, investors to believe OCP was going to buy three well-known Italian cycling brands, DeRosa, Limar, and DeMarchi, uh, and he was supposed to turn them into U.S.-focused direct-to-consumer brands. So only the SEC says Mancini never actually executed on any of those purchases and basically squandered the money. Uh, Mancini was recently arrested, then released on bail, and we're now waiting to see what will happen to him and the three other people involved with OCP who so far haven't been specifically named in anything. However, this situation shakes out. Uh, it sounds like all three of these Italian brands probably kind of dodged a bullet um, and maybe whatever other companies this person was involved with. But holy crap, this is nuts. Yeah. Can I love a good bike industry Ponzi scheme? Yeah. <laughs> alleged, alleged Ponzi scheme. <laughs> What I what strikes me as uh, fraudulent is a person that thought they could spend millions of dollars and still make a profit off of selling Demarki clothing <laughs> consumer direct within the U.S. Oh, that is brutal. I mean, yeah. I, I, I have to admit, Demarki is not a brand name that I have heard 
anyone utter in quite some time. So there was some maybe? great there were some great lines about t- trying to turn DeRosa into um a competitor for Canyon as well. Yes. Yeah. Which I thought Hey, shoot for the moon, man. Yeah. You got this. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> actually not the craziest idea, right? Like you could take on Pinarello and Colnago from a consumer direct point of view with that brand. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's still a very tough road ahead. Um, there are easier <laughs> ways to to make a to make a dollar. But um, what's what's the best way to make a million bucks in the bike industry? Start, start with, with two. two million. <laughs> yep. Or yeah. in this case, start with ten. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, yet another thing that we're going to have to just follow from this point forward because who knows how this is going to shake out. But I dare say it seems like several people are going to be having bad days, unfortunately. Fortunately or unfortunately. It's It's, entertaining. It sure is interesting. Um, All right. Now for some good news. I feel like this is legitimately good news. The Ibis, a U.S. mountain bike brand that probably most of us know about, they are back in the full suspension cross-country race bike market with its first model in that category in about 20 years. First dual what? suspension, at least, yeah. Dual suspension, yes. So what are we looking at here, Dave? Uh, it's with this uh, very cleverly named bike. Very. They've called it the XE, which is amazing because it's XC uh, cross-country. Yep, uh, but it's also XE in its price. Um, so yeah, it's the, it, they've opened up a... Uh, a manufacturing facility in um in north california and uh yeah basically the they i guess it's a direction they're going in they're still keeping production in asia for all their frames but i think with time they'll they'll move more and more bikes into this facility it's quite cool they're, they're running some pretty high-tech uh uh, methods that are very energy efficient, like their molds, for example, have the heaters um, basically directly against where the where the carbon goes. Um, so they're not having to heat up the entire mold; they're just kind of heating up the frame inside. So they're saving a huge amount of energy there. They're they're they're, they're running the entire facility off of solar energy. Um, so they they're, they're doing some cool things to try neutralize costs and to automate the processes because they know the big barrier to us manufacturing is the labor cost so they're trying to invest up front to reduce yeah to reduce the labor cost as much as possible so they've really put the effort in here um they've definitely invested uh but yeah the bike that they've created is is a a very lightweight cross-country carbon fiber race bike with uh not too crazy or progressive geometry they they kind of have argued that some cross-country bikes are too progressive. They've they've made sure that it's it's still a comfortable bike to pedal all day. What's the head tube angle? I think it's sixty-seven off the top of my head. Um, but the the seat tube angle is probably the one that people will will pay attention to. It's more like a seventy-four, I think, roughly. And they, they've justified that saying it's you know too steep of a seat tube angle cramps you and puts a lot of weight on your wrists and isn't good for long days climbing. I kind of agree with that for an XC bike. Yeah. yeah. As long as yeah, the front end sense. is good and slack and isn't trying to buck you off the entire time, I'm happy. So cl- clearly, Ibis are not big fans of the Grim Donut. No. no. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Ibis have never been the most progressive geometry company, and they've always justified that, um, I, I believe. They've always kind of stuck to their stuck to their reasons with uh with why they haven't done that but um yeah it's a two kilo frame with shock uh but that's that weight's quite impressive when you consider that they haven't gone to a single pivot design like basically every other cross-country bike um they've actually stuck with their dw link which the dave uh the dave weagle link which uh kind of aims to add a lot of um pedaling efficiency without having to rely on the shock to do it 
the attributes of the frame itself aside, especially given what we've all ex been experiencing over the last year and a half or so with shortages related to you, COVID and you know production timelines and lead times and you know all sorts of issues just with with supply and demand in general. I have been wondering for a while. Uh, like we've seen this from like a company like like Allied, for example, uh, in Arkansas, and they had made the argument quite early on that despite the fact that labor costs are much higher in the U.S. than they are in Asia, where carbon frames are typically made, there are enough places where they can save money elsewhere, and not even just you know not even mentioning the time saved in terms of time and development cost and that sort of thing, instead of having to you know go back and forth between time zones. Um, you know, they've always argued that there is a strong financial case to be made for having manufacturing closer to where your company is actually headquartered. And I know that IBIS has been working on bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. for their frames. Uh, they were they were doing the the extra small Ripley, I think it was, uh, in, in in their own facility. I guess it was kind of a test bed for 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 the XD essentially. Um, but I do wonder if we're going to see a little bit more of this moving forward as people realize that there are other advantages to be had by having your manufacturing a little closer to home, especially given the fact that labor costs in Taiwan and China aren't nearly as cheap as they used to be, which is why we're seeing a lot of production moving over to other Asian countries like, uh, you know, Vietnam, Malaysia, that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of factors here, you know, like the the political state of Taiwan, for example, is a big reason that companies are investing elsewhere. Um, but uh, one of the other big things, big factors right now is just COVID, you know, COVID sort of proven to these companies that they can't rely on, uh, you know, being so offshored in their in their manufacturing. And there's huge risk in not in not having control over your product. Um, and I think that in itself is going to cause a lot of a lot of brands to rethink their strategy and try to uh, offset some of that risk. Um, and I think we're seeing that with Ibis. You know, Ibis don't have the capacity to create all their frames in-house at the moment, but they're certainly, you know, taking the first steps to to allow them to do some of it. Like there's another mountain bike company based here in Colorado called Gorilla Gravity. And, I mean, the way that they produce their carbon frames is quite, quite a bit different. They, they're, they are using thermoplastics, supposedly, um, and it's, it's a much more automated process, so they're not using thermosets and hand-laid plies and that sort of thing. So their frames are heavier as a result. Um, but their frames are also supposedly quite a bit more durable, and more importantly, they are able to just almost to some extent make as many of them as they want or as they need to. Um, and they certainly have been seeing a lot of success their year uh, this year. And you know, the limiting factor for them now seems to be mostly just being able to get parts to put on those frames. But I feel like that is certainly an excellent case study in what those advantages can be by having that manufacturing close to home. I'm sure too, as a smaller smaller manufacturer, it's like, especially with how things are right now, being able to get space on a shipping container is very difficult if you're a small player. So like you're taking that out of the equation as well. Yeah. And yeah, and space in the factory and, you know, and not getting shuffled around because someone else bigger comes in with a bigger order. Um you know, someone that the size of Ibis, uh, I mean, I'm sure they work with partners that that respect their production times. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're still a small player. So, you know, if someone, say Trek, for example, decides they want their carbon frame manufactured at the same facility, then unfortunately, Ibis is uh, probably going to get shuffled around in terms of the timeline. So, uh, yeah, you know, just having this stuff in-house and having full control over the product is is great. You, you, you know, as James said, there's cost savings to be had, but 
even if your costs are higher, then it seems people are quite likely willing to pay more for a product that is locally made and they kind of know who made it. Well, and it's not like things are inexpensive now because they're made in Asia. So it's not like it's not like there are huge cost savings that are being passed on to consumers. So bikes are already super expensive anyway. So if they're already super expensive, I have a hard time thinking that companies will just be able to continue raising their prices on and on and on indefinitely, almost, you know, sort of like college tuition almost. <laughs> um, but I would love to see that level of control again, come, you know, be brought more in house. Um, and if it can be done without impacting the bottom line to consumers, then I don't see why you wouldn't. I mean, it seems like a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. More of this bike industry, more of this. Yep. Mm. Speaking of more of this in our last bit of news, um, Muckoff, a company in the UK known for kind of like cleaning and lubrication products. Uh, they recently announced a new take on a pretty standard product. It's new punk powder. Yes, it's called punk powder. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward bike cleaner, but it's shipped as powder and you add the water. So Muckoff says, pink, uh, Muckoff says punk powder uses 92% less packaging. It obviously costs a lot less to ship since it hardly has any weight or volume to it. Um, I mean, consumers, unfortunately, don't really seem to save much money with this new formulation, but it's still a pretty neat idea. Um, I think it's worth noting that this isn't a new concept in consumer goods in general. Like, I actually just placed an order yesterday for uh, like uh, foaming hand soap that comes in tablet form. You add your own water at home. Um, you know, we've, had, we've had powdered laundry and dish detergents for ages and you know, that sort of thing. That said, I really like this idea because a lot of these things are mostly water in a lot of cases, unless it's, you know, some sort of other like volatile solvent. Um, and it really doesn't make sense to just ship water around if you can just add it yourself. Yeah, agreed. And yeah, so a lot of these companies, I guess, reacted to people complaining about the shipping water around to clean your bike and, and they started doing um, concentrates where you add what, you know, for a, a, a packet, you might get three or four liters and you add your, your water to that. But those still contain a lot of single use plastics. Um, so yeah, Markov's next step is yeah this one, which has no plastic. Uh, it's all you know biodegradable papers and vegetable inks, and it's vegan apparently. Um, and it looks like strawberry sherbet, which is probably very potentially dangerous, maybe for kids yeah, to have it uh, <laughs> access to it. But um, yeah, I, can, I wonder if someone's going to end up sprinkling it on their ice cream at some point. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't believe it's toxic, thankfully. But um, yeah, so it's. Uh, it's definitely a positive step, I'm sure. But yeah, it's uh, anyway. I think yeah, I think it's a very positive step, which is why I wrote about it. I mean, it's not you know the biggest news. It's not going to change the world. But if you know more bike maintenance companies start doing this, and I guess in place of offering watered down cleaner that they ship around the world, then you know every little bit helps. I mean, I'm in terms of bike washing. I'm a big proponent of using not bicycle specific stuff, and I think every house already has a bottle of dish soap in it. So if you're talking about cutting out packaging, why not use a product that you already have? Like squirt a little bit of this dish soap in a bucket, add water, voila, so you're ready to clean a bicycle. The argument I've heard is that um, a product like Muckoff is a surfacent, uh, which is kind of just helps remove the dirt and let water carry it away. Whereas a, a dish soap is slightly more of a light degreaser and that it can, I guess, strip grease and, and dirt from where you don't want it. Uh, Dave, it's kind of interesting, interesting that you mentioned that about the whole surfactant property and like, you know, Zach, you were talking about, you know, degreaser and that sort of thing. 
I don't really know. I mean, I guess for me, when I wash bikes, I think I've mentioned this before, I always use Dawn dish soap um, here in the US. I can't remember what it's called elsewhere. Um, we got Dawn. Fairy. But it's always been recommended to me by other mechanics because whatever they put in there, it, it, it is a pretty aggressive, you know, relatively for dish soap anyway, pretty aggressive degreaser. Um, it does get bikes quite clean, um, but it also doesn't have any things in it that to, you know, to contaminate brake pads and rotors. So that's why I've always used it. Um, but that said, if I'm using something as just sort of like a spray cleaner, I guess that's kind of what more punk powder is supposed to be, isn't it? Like, yeah, correct. It's just, it's a spray on cleaner that you then scrub and then spray off with water. Yeah. So, so like soap. Yep. <laughs> Sounds like soap. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's um, it's it's a tough one. Like I've used dish soap in the over the years. I've also used uh, bike specific stuff. I mean they they both work. Um, and dish soap is dirt cheap. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, some people swear that the bike specific stuff is more efficient at at cleaning. I I don't know. It's it's going to come down to personal preference. And um, but yeah, it, it comes back to the fact that it is still nice to see these products trying to be more eco friendly without. I guess, uh, impacting the effectiveness of the product. I guess if nothing else, I'm kind of into the idea of products that take up less room in my house. Mm -hmm. Also true, for sure. Which probably goes back to the dish soap argument, right? Yeah, you already yep. have it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, that's enough news for today. Uh, let's go ahead and get into our Ask a Mechanic segment part of the show. Uh, we do still need some sort of theme music for this. We've been talking about it for a while now, and we still don't have any. So Mal, Mal's our editor. Uh, if you are listening to this, should, should we just give Mal the the liberty to just choose something? How, theme song of MacGyver this? would be very good if we're, if we're allowed for copyright I'm reasons. Pretty sure we are not allowed to uh, use the yeah. MacGyver theme song. That that would be my guess. <laughs> I listened to a I listened to a soccer football podcast where users send in jingles for their <laughs> like email segment every day. Um, uh, they get a ton of them, and I tried to get some for the Tour de France, and I got I got uh, a, a bunch of people wrote out lyrics for me, but they didn't actually create the music. But that oh, would be the oh. ideal, right? Is that we have a listener out there who has some musical talent who can make us like a fifteen second jingle, and as a re reward, we can send them. I don't know, something out of James's garage. Mm. <laughs> actually sounds pretty good um yeah, right but uh yeah the other option for anyone that's been watching the olympics is the the jurassic park-esque uh music that just plays over and over and over again in the background um on loop in basically every event we could just use that as well because people definitely won't be sick of that in a week's time <laughs> <laughs> oh man anyway anyway i want a okay. jingle send me a jingle we do need a jingle we do need, we do need a jingle like anyway, I okay. want I want a listener singing in it. A listener know. singing? Yeah, you like a, like a, like a short. Singing. Yeah, like a like a terrible. You know, like a just imagine a local TV commercial and a little jingle at the end. It's like go to Bob's car wash or whatever. That's what I want for our. So you just did podcast. it. Though. Do that, but replace go to Bob's car wash with ask a mechanic. Yep. Go ahead, Mal. Record that segment. Loop it. You, we'll use that. We're done. to bob's car wash all right as we have been doing for the last few episodes all of today's asking mechanic questions come exclusively from our velo club members 
You don't have to become a Velo Club member to enjoy any of the content we produce in Cycling Tips, but becoming a member does earn you entry into our private Slack channel. It cuts down on the number of ads you see on this site. It boosts the size and resolution of image galleries. And it not only directly supports the work that we do here at Cycling Tips, but it also reduces our reliance on endemic advertising money so we can continue to write what we want and how we want. Also, we just like you a lot more. Us we personally. We have sent gifts to Velo Club members before. Like we have, yeah. Like I feel, I feel somewhat non-committal about most non-Velo Club members, but most Velo Club members, I'm, I like them a lot. They're great people. I, hmm. I can't, I can't tell if you're being serious right now. It's very <laughs> different. <laughs> Tricky. No, I mean, like most non-Velo Club members, I could just take them or leave them. You know, they're, they're not like as, just, they're not as invested in cycling tips. We're I not, say. Fr we're not good friends. Whereas Velo Club members, friends. Friends for life. I mean, I, I do have to say, if any of us ever travel anywhere where there's a Velo Club member, we always have someone to ride with. Exactly, which I've done many, many times. And Velo Club members have come to visit us in Boulder, or have. I'm now in Durango. Take them out for bike rides. This is what I mean. Best friends forever. I feel like we need a... How's that as a pitch? That, that's a very good pitch. Andy, we need... Be we my friend. <laughs> Andy, we need a new Velo Club shirt. Something, to the, something along the lines of BFF Velo Club. <laughs> BFF Bell Club. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, it's, it's the quickest way to our heart is our wallets. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> oh, wow. Just so bluntly. Jeez. All right. First question of the day comes from Adrian Freeman. Do good mechanics get the chance to train younger staff? And are they willing to do this? Do their bosses allow for this? Or are they just too busy? What is the solution to this besides more money that doesn't exist? He says that he's lost count of how many shops he no longer goes to because there is no guarantee that the head mechanic will look at my bike. That horrible experiences at shops that he used to love but no longer trusts. Someone sitting next to you has taken advantage of this particular problem <laughs> with his business model. Yes. <laughs> I think it, yeah, every shop operates a little bit differently. And we talked about this um, in an earlier podcast. Someone was asking about how to become a mechanic. And it's like some shops, if they're, I'd say if they're good shops, hire people on the winter when there's more downtime to actually take the time and, and teach people. And rather than like you come into a bike shop in the summer, there's basically no time that anyone has to help you also learn how to work on bikes. So I think, yeah, I think a good shop should do this, but I think it varies shop to shop and where you're at and everything. Like there's not, you can't just blanket statement say like, yes, shops train younger people. Like definitely not the case. I mean, generally you start, we talked about this before too. You start on, like crappy bike builds, not crappy, cheaper yeah. bike builds, lots of like $400 mountain bikes. And things yeah. Like you're that. not, you're not working on customers bikes. You're working on like, I, I do new... think there's something, there's something to be said for, for wrenching as a profession and the sort of need for some level of like trial and error. Like that tends, at least that's how I learned most things. Yeah. You yeah, learn that problem. It's good solving. to have somebody around to like point out when you've screwed something up. Uh, or if you're like trying to do something tricky, it's good to have somebody around. But I think that most pro mechanics would probably say they're pretty much self-taught with the occasional person sort of like guiding them. Yeah. The, in my experience, the best shops will, will let, you know, the, the, the young guys and the, the, the fresh guys, the green guys to, um, basically, yeah, build the, the low end bikes, but then they'll have an experienced mechanic actually quality check it and give feedback and say, you know, like, oh, this, you know. You, the brakes aren't even or you know the brake pads are wrong or you know this is how you pr properly adjust this derailleur or whatever and you know and then the bike is perfect for the customer and the the person that has built the bike learns um but yeah unfortunately that doesn't always happen in a busy environment so as zach said it it's very shop dependent 
one of my one of my favorite things when I was being taught how to work on bikes was I was young and working building basically these like three hundred dollar hybrid and mountain bikes and stuff like that, and then you go through the whole process of like helping and like when I had questions, like making sure everything's done properly. And then we get the whole bike built perfectly. And then he'd be like, okay, go in the other room and I'm gonna mess a bunch of things up. Then I'd come back and be like, find everything that I've messed up and fix it. And then I'll check it over and see what you've done. Ooh, that's a good one. And that I, like that that. I really liked, I think. Like looking back, that was really good. Who was, who was doing that? What, who, what mechanic do we need to shout out for that uh, brilliant idea? His name was Tim and uh, at Summit City Bikes in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Tim at Summit City Bikes in Fort Wayne, yeah. Indiana. Well, Tim and, you and Terry. Legend. You legend. Tim and Terry, Tim. both good guys. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, so that Adrian, I don't know if that answers your question or not. That sort of answers your question. But yeah, I guess this is yet another one of those questions where the answer is, unfortunately, it depends. Yeah. I mean, I think too, because he was asking about or saying that he doesn't, he goes into a shop and he doesn't know if the head mechanic is going to work on his bike. I think a lot of that is like, if there's a shop that has a wide range of people, like being a regular and building a relationship so that with those people then you know you know the staff there or like you know the head mechanic not necessarily that he has to work on it but it's that you have a relationship with the shop and they know who you are and you know them and you feel comfortable comfortable handing them your bike to get worked on without being like oh i don't know any of these people like it yeah well and a, and, a, and a the head mechanic is probably more likely to look over your bike at the very least if you know if they if you know them right and they've seen you and they know that you're a regular. I guess like thinking about that, see that's also kind of terrible. Like shops should do a good job regardless of whether they know you or not. They you should, but they're also really busy. And if you want a little extra special attention, then it's not the worst thing to be a regular somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. The other option is uh, exactly what Zach does, which is you find a small boutique mechanic who you know exactly is going to work on your bike and take it there. Yeah. Bring it here. I'm going to work on it every time. <laughs> <laughs> Adrian, I believe pretty, you're in Australia, but that. so yeah. yeah, you know where Zach is, and otherwise find a Tim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, moving on. This one comes from Andy Baker in honor of the Olympics. He has an Olympics tech question. Uh, he recently got a new bike that happens to be an Olympic bike, uh, but it didn't come with a manual or torque specs for some parts. How tight should I torque my handlebars and seat post binders? What is he? Pretty that, tight. Does that, this mean that, he, like, he got an old race bike or what? Uh, you know, it wasn't entirely like, clear. What is an Olympic he, bike? He did mention that it was not an Argon 18, um, <laughs> which Argon 18 is the company that sponsors the Australian track team whose handlebar broke off. I mean, um, well, so he didn't say who it was, uh, the brand name, and exactly where he got it from. But Andy, I would say that in this sort of situation, you really do need to get a hold of the company that made this bike and find out what the official specs are, because while there are certain i guess trends and you know certain ranges that most companies hover around for you know for similar parts i would certainly say that they're not all identical and the difference in a critical part between five newton meters and eight newton meters is kind of a lot yeah i mean if this is like an old race bike it's going to be an actual production thing most likely so you could go to x company's website and go to where they have the manual downloads and just find your bike and find the torque specs and everything or, or take it or take it to a qualified bike shop. Yeah. Or tight until it cracks and quarter of a turn back. Yes, yep, yes. Perfect. The tried and true rule. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Peter Piankowski in Warsaw, Poland. Uh, he wants to know if he should wait for 12-speed DI2. What do you mean 12-speed? Do we know that? Oh, we do know that's 12-speed. <laughs> um, should he wait for 12-speed DI2 or pick up 
or pick up discount parts on 11-speed stuff. The build is a race bike he'd like to have ready by early spring 2022. He'd like to race this bike for three years and then sell it. I'd prefer 11-speed from a compatibility point of view, but the new 12-speed stuff looks exciting, and I'm crossing my fingers for improved pad spacing at the caliper. I also like the aesthetics of the new stuff better. Uh, in other words, he finds the drivetrain parts are a touch less massive. Uh, what do we think he should do here? I was actually having this exact conversation with someone yesterday because they wanted to get a new red bike, and they're like, I've been waiting a year and a half for 12-speed durries, and it's not out yet. And I would say if you want a bike, especially by spring, just get the just 11 buy it speed now. stuff. And like, you can turn around and sell it when the 12 speed stuff eventually comes out. But uh, the person I was talking to yesterday, I was looking right now, in the, at least in the US, dur- I just like, just to see what some of it was. Durace levers, like shift levers and a disc caliper. Their ETA currently is December, January. So like, if the 11 speed stuff's not even gonna be available by then, like 12 speed's not gonna be out anytime soon. Well, no, Zach, clearly, I mean, the 11-speed stuff's not available because they're building a massive stockpile of 12-speed right. stuff, right? totally. Huge. That's, that's why, yeah. I mean, we should look in one of these bins here and see what yeah. you got. Like, yeah, you I've probably got, got a bunch of 12-speed stuff right speed there. hiding away, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I think, like, with all the supply chain stuff, like, it's not going to be out anytime soon. Like, they've not even done a press release or anything on it, and it's barely, like, it wasn't at the tour. So, like, I would say, like, from when there's a press launch, maybe there will be a handful of group sets available, but realistically, it's not going to be readily available like another six months after they launch it. So if he's wanting to bike by spring of next year, then I would just buy whatever you can get now. Yeah, I think the other the other thing to point out here is that you'll absolutely in three years' time still be very easily able to service 11-speed parts. There's so much of it out there that Shimano is going to continue to support it for a long time to come. So uh, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think the value of the bike is going to drop significantly because it's still going to be a serviceable bike. So um, yeah, I think availability is is going to be everything here well and the other thing too is you know i think you can almost use the analogy of of like a new car sort of thing you know you generally get the best performance and best reliability from the last year of a generation of car that is built as opposed to the first year of a new generation so you know shimano generally does very good homework on their stuff we don't usually see a whole lot of they do make some running changes in line sure they absolutely they make like running changes you don't really hear about that. them um, but I mean, still, generally speaking, they seem to do their homework more or less. I mean, they don't, you don't usually hear about massive failures or recalls of first year products from them, but that said, their stuff does tend to get better year after year as the generations move on. Um, so I would say that if you were looking at an 11 speed DI2 setup, be it Altegra or Dura-Ace, it's as good as 11 speed is going to get, obviously. And at this point, it's been around for long enough that it's pretty damn good so if you can get it i would just get it and like zach said you, if, if if you are able to get the 12 speed stuff later on that your 11 speed stuff is still going to be worth an awful lot of money because everyone that i've spoken to in the industry has made it very clear that these part shortages that we're seeing right now are not going to go away for maybe another year hot take 11 and 12 it's not a big difference 11 <laughs> plenty of cards <laughs> So Agreed. says you. So says you, Zach. Yeah. Okay, personal preference question here from Mike Gettenby. What bar tape do you recommend for road and gravel? And he, he's okay if it's the same or if, or if it's not. I mean, I would say personal preference is pretty big there. Like, do you like it to have no padding? Do you like a lot of padding? Do you like somewhere in between? Well, I know do from... Like colors? Do you I know, not? <laughs> I know from earlier Slack conversations he, that he had posted... Um, 
maybe yesterday or something. I know that Mike was looking for something tacky, particularly something that's tacky when his hands are sweaty. I mean, I posted, this was a few months ago, I posted a photo. I, ha- I think it was Pro, Zip, and Envy Bar Tape. All had the same exact packaging and same like patent number on it. So like, it's all the same thing. Like, pick the one that you like. Like, there, not to. I think there are differences in those tapes, but they are definitely all from the same manufacturer. They're all more or less the same. I mean, I, I, Everything I, nowadays is like a pretty dense foam with like a slightly rubbery texture on top of it, and that's bar tape these days. Because they're all made by Velo. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying. Like, not all, but most of them. Most of them. A lot of them. So I mean, for 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 grip, when it, when your hands are wet, I like that physique. Um, like almost. Uh, like microtech stuff, stuff. microtech stuff. It's quite expensive, and it's kind of annoying it to wrap because no it doesn't doesn't like you don't stretch it the same way. But it's it's really good. It's also quite thin, but it's really good if you have sweaty hands and you and you want to maintain grip. Um, that's the only one I can think of that kind of stands out. Is that's easily available that stands out. I mean, like the Supercast stuff is pretty good too. Yeah, that's like a- the Supercast stuff is, has a good feel to it. Um, like, but again, like all this stuff is made. By Velo, it's all, for the most part. All the same stuff. It's just varying degrees of foam and how firm the foam is. But uh, the, the, like I said, the physique stuff is the only one that I can think of that's easily available that is like very much outside that that. Yeah, that I mean, I would say like if you have a physique saddle, put physique tape on it. It matches. If you have an Envy cockpit, put Envy bar tape on it. If you have a Zip cockpit, put Zip tape on it. Like if, yeah. It's all essentially the same, so I would get something that matches. Yeah, I, I, my favorite at the moment, just because of cost, is actual Velo branded tape, which the tape itself isn't actually branded. There's no embossing on it. It's basically, it's very comparable to like the the Zip um, CX stuff, which I, I really like that tape. It's excellent. Um, yep. And this stuff, it's actually a little bit thinner, which makes it a bit more stretchy to, to put on, and it's got like a, a gel underneath, so there's no, you know, when you unwrap it, there's no adhesive left on the bar. Um, yeah, it's just it's just awesome, but it, it can be a little bit tricky to find because Velo don't really have great retail presence. It's more of a like a bike shop product. Um, but yeah, it's probably retails like you know, less than twenty bucks in the US. So if you can find the Velo stuff, that's that is a great option. Plus, you're not paying for some other brand to put their name on exactly. it and then charge you thirty percent more. Exactly. So yep, yep, and it's brand agnostic because there's no branding on it. So um, which yeah. is arguably better. Yeah. So I've I've really been loving that, and it's it's durable enough. But you know, even if it's not durable, it's cheap. It's like you know, it's it's almost a third of the price of Supercaz. And then one handy tip too, because like we said, like the the padding varies. If you do like a lot of padding, a lot of times what I do is, um, particularly if you're wrapping a bar that's not a super deep profile up top, um, bar tapes these days, modern bar tapes, I say, are are generally pretty generous in terms of length. Um, so. If you have a bar that doesn't require a whole lot of tape, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll cut a couple of strips and just kind of lay a strip down where my hands would go on the drops and then up along the top of my hands and kind of like right behind the hood to just kind of like just through that curve slightly just to add a little bit of padding if I want it. And then at that point, I can have relatively thin tape for grip and so it doesn't feel too big in my hands, but I still have the padding where I want it. I used to do that exact same trick for my mountain bike way back in the day. Ooh. You used to use handlebar tape for your round bike? lighter. Oh, you're one of those people. Yeah. Oh. I did that too. This is like Norba Day's mountain no, bike. No, Not. I can tell you that Titec foam grips were lighter again. Um, you just couldn't hold on to the bars. 
Okay, all right. Well, the sorry, secondary Micah. function of, of, yeah. of grips, though, <laughs> yeah. really. Yeah. Behind so, weight, obviously. Weight being the most important function of grips. So, Mike, sorry, again, that, that maybe is another question of, of it depends, but it is a very much a personal preference thing. But as far as the texture goes, as Zach said, a lot of these tapes now are quite similar. So it really does boil down to how much thickness you want and kind of whether you like the look. But as far as the grip of it goes, a lot of them are going to be quite similar. So, uh, yeah, head to a shop, get your hands on some stuff, just kind of get an idea as to what things feel like in your hand and then go from there. Cause it's, it really is hard to tell over the internet as it turns out what things feel like. Yep. Go touch it. But yeah, any of the rubberized or silicon style tapes are worth looking at. Yeah. Yep. All right. Next question from Weiwen Ng. Uh, Weiwen is wondering if it's a known thing that you should avoid side loading a crank based power meter if possible. Um, Although arguably they need to design the darn thing to take a reasonable side load because people do sometimes drop their chain in the heat of battle and because it's not impossible that you may need some force to get a tight crank set off, etc. Um, that's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to this if power meters are designed to withstand a certain amount of side load. I mean, I would have to like think... Like on the spider be, itself or like on the crank arm? Well, I, I know that he was referencing a, a cork, which is spider-based... Um, well, if most you of like them anyway, whack but. the spider with a hammer, it's probably not going to work very well. But anything like normal bike circumstances, I would think it's going to be fine. Yeah, that would be my guess. That I like mean, they, they sell cork mountain bikes, people crash them. They like have designed them for the crank hitting the ground for a certain amount of abuse. Yeah. yeah, like within reason, I would think. But I'm sure, yeah, you can you can whack it hard enough that it'll throw off the accuracy of it. I think side loading is probably fine, but don't hit it with anything. Yeah. Like your custom titanium silicone. Like hammer. if you're like, because you side load a crank, right? You're like going around a go around a corner. You are side loading a crank, like because you're putting weight on mm -hmm. or shifting. Yeah, shifting puts a lot of side load on a crank. Yeah, or like, leaning the bike on the ground. Yeah, like these things. I but most of that's too. It's going through the crank, not necessarily the spider. Mm. That's an interesting question. It is an interesting question because he was. I mean, there was part of the question that I didn't talk about. Um, I didn't copy into my notes, unfortunately. But he was talking about. I believe it was a friend of his who had a um, an old power tap chain ring based power meter. I don't know if any of you remember those. Oh yeah. Um, and a shop had some issue with removing the crank, and it sounded like some rather liberal use of force was required. And then the power meter uh, was no longer reading kind of normal numbers. So my guess is that something either got bent in that chain ring, or the strain gauge somehow got torn or whatnot, because they are just glued to the surface essentially. Um, yeah. I mean, like what I'm imagining from this scenario that you're explaining is like something was so corroded and rusted in this crank that they had to just whack it with a hammer yep. to get this crank off the bike. Yeah. And like, which probably had to happen because the bearings in the bottom bracket were probably toast. So like if your old power meter that, yeah, like it happens. Not that it's ideal, but the crank's not designed to get whacked with a hammer, but it's also like would recommend maintaining your bottom bracket. So this scenario doesn't happen. Yeah, hammers are probably not the best tool to work with electronics. Yeah. You take Unless that back. Kaylee's face on it. I was going to say, for, for those of you who, well, for everyone here who is listening, who does not have the uh, privilege of seeing Kaylee's face right now, Kaylee just gave us all a very perplexed look. <laughs> very perplexed. Like, what do you mean you can't work on electronics with a hammer? All right. I mean, every time I've had to fix my television, I just hit it and it worked and it again. Works. So yeah. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Okay. Okay. All right, our next question is related to tubeless tires. I feel like we always have a tubeless tire question on this show at one point or another. Gotta this one comes it. from Mike Chen. Yep. 
Uh, Mike's tubeless road wheels and his buddy's gravel wheels both seem to have slow leaks to varying degrees after setting them up tubeless, uh, ranging from full to totally flat in like 24 hours or over a course of a few days. Uh, there's definitely sealant in there and it holds air enough for a day's ride. Is it normal to have slow leaks with tubeless? And if so, are there any tips that we have to prevent this? I mean, uh, I'd say, unfortunately, it is kind of normal sometimes, it, but it shouldn't be. Like, usually it's a rim tape issue or a tire and rim combination that aren't happy together. Seems like it's more often a rim issue. Like, I've got a, the front the front wheel on my gravel bike at the moment. doesn't matter what tire I put on there. It just doesn't want to hold air for more than, like, three days, two days. Whereas I have other bikes that will sit tubeless outside for weeks at a time and lose, you know, they'll drop to 12 PSI, but they don't go flat. So there's something, there's something going on with that rim, rim strip. And I've had that happen before. Yeah. I would start by replacing the rim tape and making sure that like if you've used, let's say it's a, I don't even know, say a zip wheel and you've used a different, not a zip valve, like that interface of where, how the valve sits in the rim might not be quite right. Like, so make sure that shape is okay. Yeah. Yeah, valve shape is a very common issue from what I've seen. Is uh there's some actually there's some su- surprisingly bad tubeless valves on the market which tend not to seal even on the rims they're intended for. So um yeah, just getting a a valve that has yeah, Zach says a uh, the right shape and and actually a I guess a, a gasket that conforms to the the rim shape is is pretty key. Uh Mike didn't also uh, Mike also didn't mention what kind of sealant he's using. Um, I know that for some tires I've had that have been a little bit problematic in terms of just really, really sealing up, um, I've had good luck switching to orange seal. Um, that seems to be certainly one of the more reliable ones out there. I mean, other ones that I've used certainly work, but for tires that are particularly stubborn, sometimes orange seal seems to do the trick. Yeah. I mean, some tires too, I've seen they're just like really porous thin sidewalls and you almost need to like put a bunch of sealant in and lay the wheel on one side overnight and then lay the wheel over on the other side and let just like the, let the sealant really get into that sidewall or just keep riding it around because i know like on especially tires that you're running at lower psi because you have so much casing flex as the wheel goes around as that casing flexes you're kind of like opening and closing little openings in in the tire in the casing like with those threads that are just kind of woven through there um and sometimes that can open up little you know little holes essentially that the tire will eventually start to leak through um but as you ride it more usually those holes get more and more filled in with sealant and so usually over time the tire gets more sealed up um i mean you could do the trick too of like fill a bucket of water and stick your wheel in it and see see where you can find find the the air coming from like if it's coming from a spoke hole then obviously it's rim tape if it's coming from the the tire sidewall then maybe you need to do something more with the sealant i really wish tubeless wheel and rim makers would have a more refined solution other than rim tape in general because yep. tubeless rim tape i feel like more wait james is this you saying that tubeless sucks. isn't great well let me uh, hold on let me like when when tubeless is working properly i think it's pretty good yeah but the problem is and i've said this before the execution has been so lacking in so many cases that it just ruins it for a lot of people um i think i've mentioned before you know like bond solution for example is a little bit heavier for sure it uses a molded plastic rim strip but it's a, you know, it's something that's specifically sized to the rim. It fills in the cavity really well. It has these, you know, beadlock shapes built into it. Um, it. It seals great. It doesn't peel off like the tape would. It doesn't, like, kind of migrate like a lot of tapes do when you put the tire on or take it off. Um, I'm sure that costs a lot more money to do because you have to cut a mold for a molded plastic rim strip. 
but it works so much better than just using some sort of airtight tape. And you can still, still access the smoke holes underneath it too. Yeah, you, and, and it's reusable. Yep. Like if you have to pull it off to, to access a spoke hole, you can put it back on and it'll still hold air. But it, um, it does whereas, make tire fitting pretty tough in some cases. It can, it can, but, but that's not inherent to the fact that it's a molded plastic strip. That just has more to do with the sizing of it. But I, I do really wish that more wheel and rim makers would resort to something like that as opposed to just some random width of plastic tape that you're yeah. supposed to apply absolutely perfectly and the perfect number of overlaps and so on and so forth. Like it, and it's you put just a, a couple tires on and off, like the tape gets shifted it's and done. then you have to replace it. Like, yeah, it's not a great solution. Yeah, I think overall tubeless has uh, issues of not being the most accessible product to um, consumers. No, you know, I, I would think say I think that's fairly evident at this point that it really is remains a product that's that's best kept to the the enthusiast uh, who who has you know uh, a reasonable level of uh, mechanical aptitude and and interest in doing such things because it yeah these things do occur and unfortunately it's not as easy as you know. With a tube, you just replace the tube when you start getting a leak. It's uh, tubeless can be quite a quite a faff. It's very very high on the list of meh product executions. That said, I wouldn't want to do without it in certain disciplines. So True. for me, uh, it's that. it's worth the faff. But um, thirty mil plus. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or or even thirty two. Yeah. Somewhere around there. All right. Last question of the day, and I saved the best one for last. Uh, Nick Dos Remedios. He has heard the term JRA, which for those of you who don't know, it stands for just riding along. Is it real? And if so, tell us your best stories. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I feel like you should have told me this one ahead of time. I should have thought about it. <laughs> I told mine the other the other week in, in regards to nearly killing an old lady with a tubeless tire exploding. That was a good one. That yeah. was a good one. Um, I, I know this was from quite a long time ago, but... Yeah, having spent a lot of time in bike shops, there was one I remember where someone came in with a wheel that had very, very clearly been ridden into a curb, like right angle dent in the rim, like it was perfect, you know, pinch flat tire, everything. And of course, they were just riding along when their wheel, when their wheel suddenly turned into that. So JRA is definitely a very real thing. It refers to essentially anytime someone walks into a bike shop and says you know with with some problem they say that they were just riding along when such and such happened and almost invariably almost almost without fail the thing that happened could not have happened when someone is just riding along i mean like real just riding alongs do happen sure but the joke of it but they're pretty rare is like i was just riding around the track and my handlebar handlebar broke exactly i would say the most common one is like derailleur ripped off into spokes but it's usually like very clearly the derailleur has been crashed into at some point, like big scrape and the hanger was bent. So then you shift into the lowest gear and then it catches on the spokes and rips through and rips the spokes out. Sometimes breaks frame. That's probably the most common. I was just riding along and this happened. And uh, then, you, then you have to explain like, these are the things that happened. And yeah, it is. Yeah. It is quite amazing to James's point. It is quite amazing to work in a shop and actually see how common it is for people to come in and try to, completely just lie to your face about the the incident that's just happened <laughs> it's amazing yeah and I, and I, claim I, absolutely no fault for what has clearly had yep. to have happened through pure fault i had another one i remember now when someone came in they said they were just riding along and somehow out of the blue they had a massive dent in their top tube mm-hmm. <laughs> 
just appeared. It just <laughs> appeared. They were just riding along, and they have no idea what happened. Just it's like a ghost just whacked it with a baseball bat. A tiny meteor. Yes, it could have been a. It could have been a tiny meteor that just happened to fall out of the sky and hit just perfectly. My my favorite just riding along was uh, uh, we had this guy had squealy brakes, uh, disc brakes on a commuter, so we replaced the rotors and pads because they were oily, and uh, better them in. I think it was wet that week. Came back the next week, complaining that we didn't fix the issue, and now his brakes were covered in uh, a white substance, which, uh, as it turned out to be, was lithium grease. Um, <laughs> and at first, he tried to say that they were just like that, and that is how we did it. And then eventually, we got him to admit that well, the squealing was happening in the rain, so he added lithium grease to try quieten them down. <laughs> I mean, it may have worked briefly. I mean, they were probably quiet. They probably were quiet for a little while. <laughs> but yeah, for, for a couple of minutes, that was a just riding along story until he's like, yeah, yeah, okay, I did, I did add grace to quieten it down. Was that a bad idea? So, hmm. yeah. Yeah, well. I'm trying to remember a good one. Yeah, the only I one I can think of was uh, a, a, a customer came in just riding along and the right rear seat stay was in two pieces and which i like i don't know like it happens like it, if it could have failed if it was at like a weld or something this i think it was on a carbon bike so no welds but if it was at a junction or something you're like okay crack might have extended and it's feasible but it was literally right down the middle of this tube we tried to try to convince us that he had been just commuting on this bike and had somehow cracked an entire tube in half Hmm. Didn't work. I mean, another just think, like I don't have any amazing ones. I do, but I can't think of them off offhand right now because I wasn't prepared. <laughs> but another really common one that I remember seeing is like someone comes in. I was just riding along and my pedal fell off. And then you look at it and you're like, well, you've shoved the left pedal into the right crank arm and ruined <laughs> oh, all of the threads. <laughs> like, oh wow! Yeah, that happens way more often than you would think. Normally when the person comes in limping and then says, I was just riding along, you know it's about to be a good moment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, and that, like, I, I've never understood that. It's like, did it not feel right when you were going? And you're just like, nope, this is the pedal, this is the crank arm, I'm just going to well, force that, it that's in. that's the thing. Most people don't know what that's supposed to feel like, right? They should, though. Like, I mean, you got... If you've never any, put... Anybody you've, who's Everybody removed, has done any some sort of thread. Like everyone knows how to screw something. If you've taken the in. top off of a Coke bottle, you know you know <laughs> what it's supposed to feel yeah. like. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Yeah. Common yeah. issue. Can you imagine what kind of amazing stories we would get if we went and talked to like some warranty manager somewhere? Well, oh, yeah. that would I, actually be pretty fun to do I sometime. I was actually just going to say I do know of I think at least one who I could probably I don't, I would have I wonder if I can get someone on the record to go over this stuff. I'd have to check into that. But I was just going to say uh because we are unfortunately lacking in amazing JRA stories between the three of us, uh I'm going to put a call out to any shop mechanics out there right now. If you have an amazing JRA story, which I'm sure there are an awful lot of them out there, go ahead and tag me on Instagram. I'm at angry asian on Instagram. Go ahead and tag me. Tell me your best JRA story, ideally with a photo. So I, I related, I know the guys that I was talking about earlier that taught me how to work on bikes, this was like 15 years ago, but I remember they had book that they would write down all of the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> and like, surely that doesn't exist anymore, but that was like, we were just like, 
We were like, oh yeah, we're going to make these into t-shirts and they're so good. <laughs> oh, Zach, I feel like you need to call your old shop and see if that book yeah. is still around. Yeah. All right. This, this story is to be continued. All right. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. Thanks as always for listening. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so using whatever service you use to get your podcast. We are on seemingly everything as far as I'm aware of. iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Uh, Kelly, are we on Facebook now? Yeah, should be. I think? Should be. Sure. I Feels like there the, are too many, the thing. too many websites to get your podcast There's on. There's a lot of websites are, to get podcasts. There are. And why are there so many? I don't like, get it. It's You all have the same thing. Why do we need this many <laughs> options? Um, but if you are listening on iTunes and you haven't left us a rating or review, please do so, assuming that you like us. Five stars uh, only. Five stars only. Yes, ideally. Uh, unless you have something to do with, um, unless you take issue with Kaylee's hammer or his tangents, in which case I fully endorse you just going off on him. <laughs> But you still have to give us five stars. You can be mean in the comment, but you have to give us five stars because because the five stars helps other people find us within iTunes. So that's yes. important. Which also makes it... But you can be as mean as you want to me. That's fine. Right, because also that means if you give us a five-star rating and are mean to Kaylee, it makes it more likely that someone else is going to see your mean comment to Kaylee. That's very true. There yeah, you go. You, you really you want to you want to warn people about me before they ever <laughs> click play on this podcast. <laughs> indeed, indeed. All right. Well, that'll do it. Like I said, we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye, Bye everybody. Cheers. Go to Bob's car wash.